As some of you know, I spent my early years living in the state of Maine, on the coast of Maine, till I was about 14 years old. And there are two things that keep the Maine economy alive and thriving. Tourists and seafood. And between the two, Mainers tend to prefer seafood. <laughs> Clams, mussels, fish, and of course, lobster. I had no idea just how fortunate and privileged I was as a kid to have lobster as a staple of my diet. We lived just a few blocks from the harbor and we could go down to the dock in the morning and get fresh lobster right off the boat. I have eaten hundreds of lobsters. They've made me who I am today. Lobsters, uh, now if you ever go to Maine, by the way, and you want to order a lobster, and you don't want to sound like someone from away, you want to sound like a local, you have to pronounce it as lobster. L-A-W-B-S-T-H-A-H. Lobster. If you walk into a restaurant and say, yes, I'd like to order a lobster, please, they will know instantly you are not from around there and, you know, might treat you a bit differently. Lobsters were not always such an esteemed dish. Centuries ago in North America, lobsters were so plentiful that Native Americans, the original Americans, used them not as food, but to fertilize their fields or to serve as bait for fishing to catch better food. White colonists used lobster and feed, fed it to children, to prisoners, to indentured servants. In Massachusetts, it's recorded that some indentured servants had it written into their contract that they would not be forced to eat lobster more than three times a week. They have a point. I mean, let's face it, lobsters are ugly. They are like giant saltwater insects. And yet, despite their humble beginnings and alien-like appearance, these bottom feeders have crawled their way to the top of the American diet. As a child, one of the things I look forward to every year in Maine was the annual lobster festival held in Rockland, just uh, one town over. And the Lobster Festival paid homage to the king of the Maine economy, of course, the lobster. And at the festival, patrons can experience, you know, rides and games and junk food and fireworks, loads of seafood, and of course, the pageant to crown Miss Seafood, the Miss Seafood Sea Goddess Beauty pageant. Now, one year, as it happens, my father was asked to be a judge of the sea goddess beauty pageant, which he very reluctantly agreed to do. It just wasn't his kind of thing, but a friend of his asked him, so he went along and said, okay, I'll be, I'll be a judge. And at the end of the beauty pageant, after the talent portion and the swimwear and the evening wear, judges were allowed to ask a contestant a question to, I guess, evaluate their public speaking ability and, and all that. Anyway, when my dad's turn came, he asked the contestant, what is a bright, smart, 
talented, attractive young woman like you doing in a stupid contest like this? <laughs> Which says something about my dad. He was not very subtle. He tended to say what was on his mind. And he was never again asked to judge the sea goddess beauty pageant. This, I think, was his sort of unique and special way of saying to these young women, look, you can do better than this, than being a con in a contest like this in which your worth is reduced to stereotypical oppressive roles imposed by a patriarchal culture. You have so much potential, greater things are in store for you. What Jesus says in this passage that we just heard is even more shocking and unexpected than that, but I think had a similar intention of knocking us out of our usual cultural programming into something richer and into something deeper. Jesus says, whoever comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, siblings, yes, even life itself cannot me be my disciple. I mean, when you heard that, did you think, really, Jesus? Is this our Jesus, our loving, compassionate, inclusive Christ advocating hate of family even? Jesus, as far as we know, didn't have a spouse, didn't have children, his own family background was a bit complicated. He was born as an illegitimate child, so his own sense of family might have been a bit skewed by, by that experience. Maybe he had just come from having a fight with his mother. <laughs> Maybe Jesus saw the inherent patriarchy and oppressiveness of the family system at the time and believed it was worth rejecting. If it sounds like I am just trying to redeem Jesus here after saying this, you are absolutely right. So after considering all that, I, I went to the Greek. I got my Greek on. And I wondered, is, is this the, the best translation we can find? Hate. And it turns out that the word there does not mean to harbor bitter feelings toward. It means something more like renounce or to let go of. And that helps a little, but I mean, still, honestly, this teaching is just jarring to our ears all the more so to the ears of first century people for whom family and bloodlines dictated everything about your place in the world, in society, your status, your wealth, your safety net, your career, your identity, your future. It was all about family. Which again, might be why Jesus advocated putting that aside or at least diminishing its importance. Maybe Jesus was saying that one's calling and purpose must be larger even than family, but not to the complete exclusion of family. After all, Jesus had a family. I remember talking with someone from El Salvador many years ago. He shared about a night when his village was under attack during the war there, and he had refused to fight. He was not going to take up arms, so he volunteered to work with the Red Cross. And the deal was that whenever the siren went off and there was an attack, he would have to go out into the village 
and attend to the wounded, putting his very life at risk. Well, the first time the siren went off and every time the siren went off, his wife and his children would cling to him and beg him not to go outside. Every time he had to make a choice against the ones he loved most in favor of those he was obligated to serve. What might Jesus urge us to hate or to deny or to renounce or let go of in our journey of following? Would we renounce our place, our role, our complicity in maintaining oppressive systems? Labor Day weekend is actually a pretty good opportunity for this little exercise to acknowledge the ways in which our work might support mass exploitation of other people or of the planet and non-human beings. But that's not all Jesus calls to to renounce in this passage, right? He's just getting warmed up. Jesus not only calls us to put his way above family loyalty, he also says if we want to be his followers, we must give up all our possessions as well. Hate your family, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, then you can be my disciple. Like a good financial advisor, Jesus is urging people to consider the cost before signing on, which, you know, honestly really isn't a great recruiting strategy. I mean, don't you think Jesus could have benefited from some like marketing, coaching? Before you sign on with me, consider the cost. Your family will have to come second or third. You'll have to surrender all your stuff. You know, that doesn't really inspire masses of people to sign on to your program, which might have been exactly the point. Remember, the passage starts out with Jesus saying, now large crowds were traveling with him. Large crowds were traveling with him and he turned to them and said, maybe this was Jesus' attempt to cull the roles a bit, to find out who was really in, who was really on board, who was really serious, who was willing to move from simply being an admirer of Jesus to being a follower, who was just hanging out, interested in hearing what he had to say, and who was actually committed to changing their life in radical ways and getting on board with his way and with his mission. Over the past couple of weeks, there's been a national conversation and argument, really, about this whole concept of considering the cost in the reaction to student debt forgiveness. Those who disagree, isn't that a cute slide? Those who disagree with this new policy are quick to point out that people who take loans, who take out loans, had already considered the cost. They knew what they were getting into, which makes the impact of their responsibility their responsibility, not somebody else's. That's the counter-argument. And there's certainly, you know, there's a point to be made there, I suppose. But even in Jesus' 
insistence that we take up our cross and follow him just as he is taking up his cross and following God's way, let's not forget that even Jesus needed help carrying his cross. The Gospels say that Simon of Cyrene helped him carry that burden, carry the cross for Jesus when Jesus couldn't go another step. Simon might have been really the only person who literally picked up a cross and followed Jesus. Clarence Jordan is the founder of the Koinonia community in Americus, Georgia. And the Koinonia community is the community that gave birth to Habitat for Humanity, founded by Clarence Jordan. Clarence grew up in a wealthy family, earned a PhD in Bible, but instead of becoming a professor, as his family was urging him to do, he instead founded an interracial faith community in rural Georgia in the 1950s. An interracial faith community in rural Georgia in the 1950s. At one point, the community needed legal assistance after they were excommunicated by the Southern Baptist Convention, just as we were uh, separated from the Southern Baptist Convention for uh, ordaining women as leaders for a different reason. But anyway, their charge was persisting in holding services in which both white and colored people attended together. That was the charge that got them kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention. It was a time of deep danger for this community. Vandalism, cross burnings, beatings, bombings, boycotts, everything. And they needed help. So Clarence went to his brother Bob, a successful attorney who also happened to have his eye on a seat in the state senate. His brother said, Clarence, I can't help you. I can't do that. You know my political aspirations. If I represented you, I, I will lose my job, my house, everything. Clarence said, Bob, we're losing everything right now. We're at risk of losing our lives. And Bob said, well, Clarence, it's different for you. Clarence said, what's different, Bob? Didn't you and I join the church on the same day as kids? Bob said, I follow Jesus, Clarence, up to a point. And Clarence said, would that point be the cross? That's right, Bob said, I follow him to the cross, but I'm not getting on the cross. I'm not getting myself crucified. Clarence said to his brother, Bob, I think you're an admirer of Jesus, but not a follower. You go to your church and you tell them you're an admirer of Jesus, but you're not interested in following him. Now, the truth is, VHC, I can be more of an admirer than a follower myself. On the one hand, Jesus makes it very difficult, almost impossible, 
to be a disciple. It will cost us everything, and we need to know the cause before jumping in. On the other hand, maybe Jesus makes it intentionally impossible to be his disciple on our own abilities. When we confess, I can't, I can't do this, knowing we will fail, knowing we will fall on our face, knowing we will fall then on our knees, seeking God's grace for our failures and shortcomings. But when we say, I can't, God steps in and says, but I can and I will be with you. The truth is, we are all less like beauty queens for Christ and more like bottom feeders. Just scrounging around, crawling around, scrounging around for ourselves. But the good news is, God loves bottom feeders. God went all the way to the bottom to find us, to free us, to save us from ourselves and set us free. Amen? Amen.